people are saying like, oh, prepubescent kids are getting surgery and children are getting surgery. And like none of that stuff is happening. Like anyone under the age of 18 that is getting surgery, it's usually chest surgery after many, many, many years being supported in a multidisciplinary program with family support. And the reason that they're often getting that procedure is because they were denied or didn't have access to early enough pubertal suppression or medical care. Welcome to Sex, Body, and Soul. I'm Kate Roberts, founder of The Body Agency. And on this show, we talk about the marvel that is our bodies, what they can do, and what they need to thrive. Ladies out there, our time is now. Let's get to it. Excited to have on the show, Dr. Blair Peters. He, they, is an assistant professor in both the Division of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgery and Department of Urology at Oregon Health and Science University. He's a board-certified plastic surgeon with dual fellowship training. He is also one of the first surgeons in North America to complete an additional fellowship in comprehensive gender-affirming surgery. A large part of his practice focuses on phalloplasty and vaginoplasty surgery, which basically means he builds penises and vaginas with a special emphasis on nerves. He is also a very strong advocate for the LGBTQIA community. Welcome to the show, the fabulous Dr. Blair Peters. Dr. Blair Peters, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's it's wonderful to have you and thank you for the work that you do because you change lives. I've spent a lot of time researching what you do and how you do it. And it's just absolutely fascinating. So I'm so thrilled to have you on the show to talk about gender reaffirming surgery and everything that goes with it. So my my first question is just tell us a little bit about you for for the listeners who can't see Blair, he's amazingly cute and he has pink hair. <laughs> and so for me, that's already like I fell in love with you at immediate sight. But more importantly than how we look, the work that you do is incredible. So tell us a little bit about you, what you do and what is gender affirming surgery. Yeah, I'd love to. So yeah, my name is Blair Peters. I use he, they pronouns. I am a board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon. I work out in Portland, Oregon at Oregon Health and Science University, where I'm an assistant professor. And my clinical practice is basically full-breath gender-affirming surgery. So facial surgery, chest surgery, and a lot of genital surgery. I'm a little bit unique in that in um, I, as a queer person, sort of in healthcare and medicine and surgery, I very much center my own identity in my work, both within academic medicine and in the operating room. So frequently that means that my clinical practice is often intersecting with a lot of advocacy work I'm doing, really focusing on queer representation, both in medicine and society, and sort of training other people how to be more inclusive in their own practices in medicine and just out in the world in general. Now, talking about being out in the world, your Instagram handle is Queer Surgeon, which it is. I also love. <laughs> uh, wh- it's to the point. <laughs> it is to the point. Do you get much reaction about that? Good or bad? I'd say overwhelmingly positive now. There is, I think queer is a word, it's very much been reclaimed. Mm -hmm. And especially for like the older generation, it can still be very triggering for some people because it was historically used as an insult. And I think a lot of people do still have trauma associated with that word. 
But overarchingly, the younger generations view queer as this like inclusive, positive word that a lot of us use to describe ourselves. So overarchingly, I'd say it's positive, but I do acknowledge that for a small group of people, they do sort of still have a negative reaction to it themselves. Mm -hmm. I very much remember growing up with my parents who, if my father was alive, he'd be in his 90s now, but he would use it in a very negative way. So you're right. We have started a new generation where it's a normal word, but for still people who are alive in this world, it's still used in a negative way. Yeah. And that's the thing. Like, absolutely. When queer is used in a pejorative or a negative context, like absolutely, it's still a slur and it's very offensive, but Mm -hmm. overarchingly, it's been reclaimed by the community. And that's how I myself identify. So it's like a strong and powerful word to me. And I like the fact that it still sort of like gives people a bit of a reaction because I, I want you to be a little bit uncomfortable because we are too comfortable, like living in sort of just like the status quo and the oppressions that we've all become acclimated to. So it's supposed to put you in a position where you start questioning things. Mm-hmm. Well, you've come to the right show here. <laughs> um, you know, we want to really delve into these issues related to sexuality, whether you be a parent or whether you are thinking of yourself and how you identify. And it's important to really unpick these issues and opportunities that we have today with our sexuality. And I do want to say, and I've mentioned this every time we've spoken, that I'm still learning. It's very, very important. Intersexuality is very, very important to what we do here at the Body Agency and on, on the podcast. And so if I say anything that is not correct or offensive, you have my full permission to tell me that. And I'm really coming from a place of still learning and changing the way I speak as well. Yeah, of course. I really wanted to get that out there and also tell the listeners that we are going to be talking about matters of sexuality and changing your body parts. So that's what the conversation is going to be about. (laughs) So Blair, when did you sort of wake up and say, I want to do this work. I, you know, last time we spoke, you told me that you knew how to build a penis and you knew how to build a vagina. I do. (laughs) Did you just wake up one day and say, I want to build penises? No, I mean, I think my evolution into doing this work sort of in a lot of ways mirrored my own understanding, both of myself and also of kind of queer history and just the state of medical care for trans and gender diverse people. So as someone that, you know, in medical school, I thought I was interested in plastic surgery. So that's kind of how I got peripherally sort of involved in a field that you know, in theory, was supposed to be responsible for transgender surgery. And I got into my residency program, got a few years in and kind of realized, like, we have no actual education on this at all. And no one really talks about it at our conferences. No one writes about it. It's not at our meetings. It's not in our guidelines. It just wasn't really anywhere within, like, academic medicine. And that sort of forced me to start asking some questions. And I think at that same time, I was going through a lot of my own journey of questioning my own identity as someone that early on when I came out, I would have identified as like a cisgender gay person, but never like felt really like fully comfortable in that label. Like I just knew less about what I was and more about what I wasn't. And that was kind of where I was at. 
So I started doing sort of my own research about queer history and started really understanding that a lot of the rights and the privileges that I enjoy as or, you know, really benefit from as like a white queer person were in many ways won by not only queer people of color, but namely black transgender women. And then I started asking myself these questions like, well, if that was like who a lot of the early work was done by, like, why are we not seeing greater sort of social medical advances for that same group of people? And I kind of started to really talk to people in the community and during my residency, we started doing some gender-affirming um, mastectomies or top surgery. And really, most people were pretty much going out of country or on multi-year-long wait lists or would, like, you know, travel to Thailand or Europe to get surgery and then come back with no follow-up. And it was really, like, you know, for Canada, is where I did my residency, this very developed country with oftentimes a focus on equity, the care was really, really just bad and certainly not where it should have been. So I kind of, I think, saw that. And as I learned more about the procedures and what my own interests surgically were, it kind of became this blend of sort of the fact that it was needed, a piece of social justice, the fact that I love doing those cases, and then feeling like I also just got to work in the community that I spent my time with outside of the hospital too. So it's just this sort of perfect blend of it all clicked and I just knew that's where I needed to be. And that's how it started. Mm -hmm. So I understand that about five to 10% of our population is queer. Yeah. And I also understand that you are only one of about five specialists in the U.S. performing these surgeries. Now, that seems to me to be a massive disparity of healthcare in general. I have so many questions. So talk to me about that a little bit. Yeah. So as far as the 5 to 10% number, that's sort of an evolving figure because usually when people talk about that, we're talking about like LGBTQ plus, so like lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, asexual, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's a, it's a big group of people. The vast majority of those obviously wouldn't need like gender affirming surgery, but that's five to 10% of people is a massive group of people that need healthcare. And there's, you know, many other issues when it comes to healthcare for LGBTQ plus people outside of just gender affirming surgery. But certainly gender affirming surgery is a huge issue. About 1% or so of the population, best guesses, is trans and gender diverse. And especially as our outcomes are improving and surgery is becoming more accessible, more and more of that 1% are wanting care. It's kind of like there's always been a huge demand, but there's been no supply. And it depends on the type of procedure. So there is only about five-ish centers in the country that perform phalloplasty, which is sort of creation of a penis, which is kind of the most complicated of the, the surgeries and the procedures that would fall under gender-affirming. But even something that most plastic surgeons can do, like a gender-affirming mastectomy or top surgery, wait lists tend to still be years long to get in to see somebody. So we're just nowhere near even coming close to meeting the demand which is, I think, multifactorial and the fact that we oppressed this care for so long that some people that I'm seeing are literally like in their 70s and for the first time in their life, it's actually accessible to them. Mm. So we have mm. people from, you know, mid-teen years to really late in life. So we just have sort of created this problem for ourselves by suppressing and oppressing a marginalized group for a long time. And there's a lot of this narrative, especially even in plastic surgery or a lot of our meetings, 
gender affirming surgery is talked about like it's this new specialty, which I push back against because it's not new. Like it has literally always been there, but we as like medicine and as a specialty have just started to withdraw the barriers and the oppressions that we've put on this community and are actually acknowledging that the care is medically necessary. Mm -hmm. So it's not new, it's new to us. So yeah, I mean, it's like, there's a lot of work to do to get to the point where there's equitable care for everyone. So Blair, I have been doing this work around healthcare for a very, very long time. And my work has taken me over the last two decades all over the world and parts of Asia, India, Eastern Europe, you name it, Africa. And it doesn't matter where I go. There are huge communities of transgender members of the LGBTQI communities who are all marginalized. And they have managed to find the surgery somehow, even though they're living on a few dollars a day. And so that leads me to believe that not just here in the US, but everywhere, there's a lot of illegal surgeries or backstreet surgeries going on. What do you know about that? Yeah, I think ultimately it speaks more to the fact that like this care for people that truly do need it, it's like life saving Mm -hmm. care. So it's like when you put someone in that position, even if, you know, and they're basically their options are zero care or some degree of surgery that may have like a high level of risk with minimal support and post-operative follow-up or whatever it is, most people are going to take that risk because it's not really a choice. Like that's just, that's their only path forward. So to clarify, only path forward because they feel like they've been born into a different body or only path forward because they medically need this procedure? A little bit of both. It Mm -hmm. depends. I think Ultimately, like one of the big misunderstandings of trans and gender diverse people is that everyone has the same needs and gender identity is internal and it's varied and it can be different things to different people. But right now, the way that we even frame things with how procedures are worded, how they're coded, how they're billed, it all suggests that you either need to go from male to female or female to male and you need to socially transition, then medically transition, then surgically transition. And we've created this narrative that's supposed to just be a cookie cutter model for everybody. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge disconnect in terms of what our options are for people versus what they actually need. So like even that comment, like born in the wrong body, a lot of people do feel that way, but there's just as many trans people that don't feel that they were born in the wrong body. They, you know, might've been assigned male at birth and they identify as a transgender woman, but there's nothing wrong with their body to them. It's society that thinks their body is wrong for what their gender identity is. So I think it depends who you're talking to, really. That would be a perfectly accurate statement for some people and totally wrong for others. So I think that's the the big thing to keep in mind with Mm -hmm. this is when we're talking about a huge community of people, everyone's needs are individualized. So interesting. Now, Why is the U.S. medical, U.S. and Canada medical community just sort of, I mean, this community is only really just getting started, right? Yeah. Why why has it taken so long is my first question. And secondly, can you get the surgery on health insurance now? Yeah. So 
I'm actually going to start by answering your second question because it's relevant to the first question. (laughs) Yes. So there have been massive shifts in insurance coverage for these procedures. It came down to basically a 2014 Medicaid ruling that took away like an exclusion policy, which made these procedures much more doable under the umbrella of insurances. So almost all of the surgery I do Basically, all of it is covered by insurance, and most of it is actually Medicaid or Medicare. Some people do have private insurance plans, and there's certainly still a lot of work to do. Like, by no means does every single insurance coverage under affirming surgery, but annually that percentage becomes much, much higher and much greater. That's part of the answer to your first question about why it took so long when it wasn't covered by insurance. This is like a pretty heavily marginalized community, and out of pocket surgery costs are huge. Yeah. There are very, very few trans and gender diverse people that could afford Mm -hmm. private pay surgery Mm -hmm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. So that brings up those conversations about going to potentially less developed countries where surgical costs are going to be lower. And then that raises a whole lot of issues with sort of complications and things. Mm -hmm. So that was just a sad reality, I think, is for a lot of health systems, like it wasn't profitable and they couldn't you know, that was like the bottom line, right? And at the end of the day, I think we also just have to like, look at the patriarchy and its impact on just like the spaces that we live in and occupy. And, you know, most people in power, especially like, you know, it's getting a little bit better every year, but it's still mostly like white, straight men, for the most part. And, you know, that dictates like what's deemed like professional, it sets sort of our priorities, especially in things like academic medicine. And it was one of those things where it's only very recently that I think enough advocacy work has been done to really make gender-affirming surgery mainstream. So a lot of this stuff has been happening in the U.S. for many decades, but outside of really the umbrella of medicine. And, you know, it was sort of loan providers in private practices outside of major hospitals that were sort of away from the influence of, you know, the sort of power players. Oh, that's a whole different podcast (laughs) on (laughs) politics and healthcare. But just to get some clarity, I'm interested to know when did it start to be available on insurance, especially through Medicare? 2014 was the big switch. So who was that? Who was in power then? It was Obama. Oh, yeah, it, was it was Obama. Obama. Of course yeah. it was. Yeah. With Bush yeah, and tracks. everything after that. that yeah. Tracks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're, we're foreigners. I just think, you know, the administrations are so powerful and I'm always talking actually about, you know, whether it's, it's not about whether it's Republican or Democrat, right? But it does sway these controversial or what's seen as controversial medical procedures such as abortion or gender-affirming surgery or family planning even. And, you know, Bush gets a bad rap, but he actually was the president to do more for HIV AIDS than any other president in history, including Clinton. So, I I think it is interesting to sort of know when these milestones happen and which administration was leading it. So, of course, Obama, we we loved what he did. So thank you, President Obama, for bringing this into healthcare. Yes. So to get back to what happens, and maybe you don't even know with the sort of Backstreet. What you basically said is private surgeries can only really be afforded by the 1%. And 
we've talked about the great demand that is out there and very little options. So huge wait lists. Yeah. What are people doing? What and what are some of the risks that can happen when they don't go to a specialist like yourself? Yeah. Again, I think that while you're comment about the one percent, it's like the one percent of the one percent oh, no. afford, you know, that can actually afford things private pay. So it's it's a complicated thing. Like I see some patients for consult that have waited years just to get into my office. And you know, that means that you are meeting people in all kinds of situations with all types of sort of mental health issues stemming from that. So I think some people are just hanging on for dear life and kind of gritting and bearing and just trying to get through day to day until they finally have access to care and like really not living their life oftentimes in a meaningful way. The sad reality is we lose patients on wait lists sometimes. Like we will sometimes hear that someone on our wait list, you know, was lost to suicide. That happens from time to time. Some people will go with whomever, you know, they do what they need to do. And like, sometimes that means going to a different country. So sometimes we'll see patients, you know, that went elsewhere for surgery that have complications and we help deal with them the best we can. So I I think it's like a, it's a difficult answer. The positives are that like care is rapidly increasing in access across the country and things are getting better. We have, um, you know, multiple fellowships across the country to train surgeons how to do this now. And it's getting integrated into academic medicine and residency programs. And we are doing a lot of work in that front, but it's just sad because now that it's like people are like, oh yeah, gender affirming surgery is so important and we should do it and are ignoring the fact that they, you know, basically created this scenario where there's a handful of surgeons that are actually competent right now to do these procedures well. And then, you know, all these institutions just magically want these great high volume gender affirming surgery programs because it's now like the politically hot right thing to do but have ignored the fact that they are the reason why the health system is in this state as why we can't offer the care and the volume that we need to. And I just wrote a piece for our national newsletter sort of speaking to the need for advocacy from surgeons in our surgical societies because like gender affirming care is not political, but it has been politicized just like so many other healthcare and issues just like abortion. It's crazy to me that, like someone's medically necessary care can somehow be like someone else's political platform. Mm. I don't know how we got there, but we're here. Mm -hmm. And so many major medical organizations and pediatric organizations and psych organizations are really speaking up against the wave of anti-trans legislation sweeping the country. But up to this point, our surgical societies have pretty much said nothing. And the problem with that is surgery is like, It can be a scary thing if you don't know what's actually happening. And because we are not fact-checking and speaking to what the truth of these surgeries are, people are weaponizing surgery and using it as Mm -hmm. propaganda to Mm -hmm. fear-monger and create a totally false narrative about what's happening. So I do want to say a few things. There's like this idea, and especially the last week I've noticed, like my social media platforms are going crazy just with like, I've been getting death threats all week, like my emails, my Twitter, all this stuff, because there's very few of us as surgeons that are visible in this space. And there's this wave attacking trans youth across the US right now. And people are saying like, oh, prepubescent kids are getting surgery and children are getting surgery. And like, none of that stuff is happening. Like, 
anyone under the age of 18 that is getting surgery, it's usually chest surgery after many, many, many years being supported in a multidisciplinary program with family support. And the reason that they're often getting that procedure is because they were denied or didn't have access to early enough pubertal suppression or medical care. And most of the teens that I would be doing that procedure on, it's literally like we are doing that surgery because they can't even engage in their life or live their life if we do not. But people just ignore that and, you know, we'll throw out all kinds of crazy words like mutilating and child murderer and this and that. And it's getting really scary out there, honestly. Like, I fear for trans and gender diverse people. And I think there's this misunderstanding, too, of like, even within the the overarching gay community, that this is like an issue that only affects trans people. Well, they always start with the most marginalized. And then when they start gaining traction, they'll just move up a peg. So like, why do you think we're seeing that like the don't say gay bill? Because they've been super successful with anti-trans legislation. So now we're going for that. So to anyone that sort of has more privilege, whether it's, you know, a white cisgender woman, like these issues matter, like it's going to just roll uphill. And unless you're like a white cisgender man, like you are not protected from anything. It's the same with the abortion movement. Well, it's not the same. It's two entirely different things, but I'm talking about the death threats and how people go after those communities. The similarities for sure. Thank you for clarifying that, by the way. And yeah, you're welcome. It's disturbing to hear. Now, as a parent myself, I have a little girl who's 11 and I'm trying to teach her as much as possible about LGBTQI and sexuality as she's a tween now and uh, <laughs> moving into puberty. Now, if she was to come home to me and say, you know, I, I wish to be a man, I would be traumatized, quite honestly speaking, that I gave birth to a little girl and it would take me a moment to sort of pull myself together. Now, of course, I want, like any parent, for my child to be happy and healthy and feel good and have confidence and feel comfortable in her body in whatever sexuality she decides that she is. <laughs> but tell me about some of your experiences with parents and how early, what's the earliest age you have performed the surgery? Yeah. So my, I think I should clarify a few things. So I worked as part of like a large multidisciplinary transgender health program, which has a separate sort of pediatric group within that. So I'm definitely not the person seeing like a new transgender child or adolescent presenting with dysphoria. Like that would be our pediatrician or pediatric mental health provider or social worker and endocrinologist. So I'm typically seeing people for a surgical referral or consultation. So like much further down along on that pathway. But certainly parents come in with all different types of reactions. The most important thing I think that as a queer person that came out myself and just talking to a lot of other people who had, you know, positive or neutral or negative experiences with that, you can never take back your first reaction. Yeah. It will stick with that person yeah. forever. Yep. And almost always like the parent will center themselves in that conversation yeah. and their own feelings and neglect what is really needed, which is just like, love and acceptance yeah. in that instance yeah. and the 
you know, I'm mourning the loss of my little girl, for example, or whatever someone will say, will deeply, deeply traumatize someone. So yeah, to any parents listening. (laughs) Yeah, no, and I, you know, I'm being honest because obviously I would accept and try to be as loving and supportive as possible. But I think we have to acknowledge that it's hard for the parents as as well. Yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of parental support groups and even with our families, like that's why we have a mental health provider and a social worker to like work through and support everyone in that process because the parents need to be adequately supported too for the individual living with their parents to be doing well you know, it, it's not really like they can't be siloed away from each other. It's part of your mental health, right? As you said, the first reaction from your parent will be part, very much part of your journey and happiness. Yeah, and it acceptance. just never it just never goes away. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, totally. But as far as surgeries go, so there's a few, a few, I think, again, misunderstandings about gender surgery in adolescence. So by adolescence, I should clarify too, I mean under like 18 or under is what I mean when I say adolescent. So no one prepubescent is ever getting surgery. Facial surgery almost never happens under the age of 18. So not really relevant to discussion, kind of comes in with skeletal maturity and things like that. By far the most common surgery that would occasionally happen under the age of 18 is mastectomy or top surgery. When that does happen, it's most often like 17 or 16 years of age. Like very rarely do we dip under that. Have I? Yes. But those are sort of very specific extenuating circumstances where it's maybe somebody, you know, that has huge amount of chest development that they can't bind safely. It's holding them back from every aspect of their life. The kid's not going to school. They're actively suicidal from their chest dysphoria. All of these other things that it's really like a, we need to do this or we might lose this teenager type of scenario. Mm -hmm. So like where no one is taking it lightly. And I think that's just what I get so frustrated by Mm -hmm. with like the narrative being decided for us. Um, These decisions are made over long periods of time with not just the teenager who is able to give independent medical consent for themselves, but with like many, many, many multidisciplinary members of a health team and, you know, the family and the parents and genital surgery almost never happens under the age of 18. Like has it in a couple scenarios? Yes. But again, like very extenuating circumstances. Mm-hmm. So the interesting thing about young surgery and, you know, people have this image of like a child getting surgery that they can't consent to and irreparably harming their body. So that is happening to intersex youth. Lots of like, you know, babies, young children are being given genital surgery because they have some intersex condition that basically is being treated because someone doesn't, you know, anatomically present as fully female or male. Mm -hmm. And that is well before a kid can consent. And all we're treating in those instances is a social expectation for someone to have like male quote unquote or female quote unquote genitals. So it's just interesting that like... (laughs) That's being completely ignored in this entire discussion. And I know and have met and talked to intersex advocates that had unnecessary surgery when they were kids and have like irreparable issues from that um, and wish they had, you know, the option to make that choice for themselves when they were older. Can you explain intersex surgery? Because I have never heard that term before. Yeah. So, well, intersex is, it's a little bit of an umbrella term. Sometimes it's called differences of sexual development, but it's when someone has some basically chromosomal or anatomic condition that would basically make them not 
fully male or female in terms of their phenotypic appearance. So sometimes that could be someone, for example, with an XY chromosome, which would typically be like, quote unquote, male chromosomes, um, who could have androgen insensitivity. So their body wouldn't react to sort of the potent form of testosterone. So they basically don't go through, quote unquote, male puberty, and they'll develop breasts, and they'll have the external appearance of a vagina, but they'll have internal testicles. And there's a whole host of conditions that are intersex. Actually, 1% of the population is intersex, just as many people that have red hair. It's a huge number of people wow. and no one knows about it. Oh, so many questions. How do you decide <laughs> what gender to make them? Is it how many chromosomes they have of the different sexes? Well, isn't that like, how do you decide that for someone? I don't think you ever should. And that's the the really hard thing. And you need to have... um. I need to give you her name. Her name's Alicia, and she's this incredible intersex advocate, and she speaks a lot to this. And I think it would be a really nice adjunct to this conversation mm. because, yeah, her mm -hmm. story is incredible, and it's just like transgender visibility is increasing, which is great, but also intersex erasure is growing just as much. And they're really these parallel movements that should be happening in tandem because on one hand, basically what is really happening to intersex youth is being sort of propped up like it's happening to trans youth, which it's not. So the whole like narrative of, oh, we're like attacking you and all these people because we're protecting kids from harm, yada, 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 like it's complete garbage. Because then on the other hand, they're taking a lot of these like same treatments and just, you know, they're happening to intersex youth and everyone just seems to be okay with that. So at the end of the day, like none of this is really like about protecting kids. It's about like upholding this regimented social binary that we all have to be you know, male or female in the way that society wants us to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Switching gears a little bit from a reaffirming surgery to regular plastic surgery of your genitals. Mm -hmm. Do you ever engage in labiaplasty or penis enlargement? Because I know they're very, very popular surgeries. Yeah, they're definitely increasing in popularity for sure. I don't personally, mostly because, I mean, my wait lists are years long for every procedure I do. And that's mm. just, yeah, it's just not the work that I think I should be doing. I am actually in the process of writing a paper with my two best friends. One's a urologist and one is a gynecologist um, about the clitoris. We are going to be putting out basically the first ever Nerf count for the human clitoris. And we're bringing in a lot of those conversations about labiaplasty and female genital mutilation. And my friend, uh, Maria, Dr. Maria Yuloko, she is... Um, kind of just this like badass woman who specializes in sexual medicine. She's a urologist and she speaks a lot about like the racist and misogynistic oppression of the clitoris. And it's really interesting, not just comparison, like comparing the amount of literature and knowledge we have sort of on the penis versus the clitoris, but how that's impacted actual clinical practice. And something like labiaplasty, for example, um, there is, if you don't know, like the neural and the nerve anatomy, like there's a real risk that you can damage someone's sensation. So there is a bit of like a knowledge gap there that I think is just starting to be filled in and was overlooked for a long time. Just like, you know, clitoral owner sexuality. Yeah. Well, it, it for me, having a clitoris myself, and uh, I'm a vagina owner, a proud vagina owner, 
you know, I've always sort of, and I, I know that that other straight women such as myself feel the same way where I'm like, mine doesn't look as pretty as others, you know, and, and, yeah. and it's fine. I've, I've never had any complaints, <laughs> but I do know that the labiaplasty, uh, you know, altering your vulva to look different, your labia to look different is a growing trend and society and culture have made it that way. Now, I'm a full advocate if something is medically wrong and you have pain or, you know, your menorah hangs out of, of your vulva, then get it fixed. Absolutely. But altering yourself down there because you have perhaps watched porn and feel that you don't look as pretty as the porn stars is a huge no-no for me personally. Yeah. I actually have a lot of conversations about that issue with when I meet with my trans feminine population before vaginoplasty, I speak a lot about just like the beauty of vulva diversity and how different like every vulva appears. And it's interesting in terms of like the social sort of pressures, because yeah, on one hand you have with cisgender woman, this movement to kind of like almost remove or make the labia minora smaller. But then many of my transgender women and trans feminine patients want very visible labia minora to look quote unquote, as natal or natural as possible. So these like totally different things are occurring in tandem for like different reasons, but kind of at the same end of the day have this like core common theme. And it's kind of like a lot of this stems down from, you know, the patriarchy and the expectations that are sort of put on like a female body. So yeah, it is, I mean, I think anyone should do for themselves what is the right thing. And I have no judgment and have no problem, you know, with a cisgender woman getting a labioplasty if she feels that's the right thing to do for herself. But we do have to like have those broader conversations about like why maybe someone yeah. feels that way. It doesn't make their feelings any less valid. There's um, an amazing account on Instagram at the Volva Gallery and the artist illustrates basically people send in pictures of their vulva and the artist paints them and just like really amazing, like posts the paintings along with the individual story about how they struggle with their vulva appearance and how they feel about it now. And sort of doing a lot of that work of breaking down where those feelings are coming from. And mm -hmm. yeah, I would encourage everyone to check it out. It's really great. Mm -hmm. Very sadly, we're coming to the end of this podcast. And <laughs> I knew that there would be 12 podcasts in this one podcast. And uh, I'm excited that this is just the beginning of our journey together, Blair, because you are absolutely doing life-saving, remarkable work. And, you know, you've chosen to go down this, this pathway of helping people. And you could be doing mm -hmm. so many other things and making hundreds of millions of dollars and you've chosen this. <laughs> I am developing a very interesting campaign called Body Next. And it's the first time I'm actually talking about it on air. And I want to have people from any background really talk about what they love about their bodies and also what their biggest insecurity is about their bodies. So I'm going to ask you this question and I will prefix it with saying that when I started this work, and I think you've probably gone down the same pathway, I didn't want to talk about anything. I didn't want to talk about what I didn't like about my body, which is a lot. I didn't want to talk about issues that I've had, 
you know, I had an eating disorder, for instance. I was ashamed of that. And I think we're at the uh, crossroads in the world now where if we don't start talking about these things, we're never going to move the needle. So my yeah, totally. My last question to you is, what's the one thing you absolutely love about your body? And what's the thing that, you know, you've felt shame over? Yeah, I think I've done a lot of that work. I think myself, there's a lot of, a lot of toxic body culture within the queer and especially the gay community. So what I love most about my body is what it allows me to do. You know, I have a very physical job and I'm like literally using it five days a week to make people feel better about their bodies. So I think that's more than anything, like what it's capable of doing. Like it's a vehicle to deliver real change for people. What have I felt insecurities about? I've always been like very tall and kind of lanky and like very skinny, but like not in a quote unquote traditionally desirable way. So I think I always felt very insecure especially within like the gay dating scene, because I was never going to be like athletic or muscular, or any of those things. And I always had this very like kind of queer, ill-defined body type that like no one was really ever supposed to be that traditionally attracted to. So I definitely had a lot of insecurity, I think, in that way. But just like you say, I think over the years, we're just like, well, like, why do I feel this way? And a lot of it was, I think, external versus like coming from within myself. Mm. Well, you are beautiful inside and out, Blair. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that I found you and that we can do this yes. work together. Yeah, well, thanks so much for having me. That was great. Oh, you'll be back. Don't worry. You'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I'd love to be. <laughs> okay. I'll see you soon. Bye. Thank you for joining me for this episode of Sex, Body, and Soul. Remember, you can find all my favorite products and resources to support your health and sexual wellness through my one-stop shop, The Body Agency. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating and review on your favorite podcast listening platform. We are actually partnering up with Vital Voices to get much-needed dignity kits to the refugees in Ukraine. Girls and women do not have access to personal hygiene products that keep them safe and healthy. Please go to thebodyagency.com to donate a dignity kit today. Be sure also to sign up for our email list at The Body Agency for the latest curated recommendations from our industry experts and use our special promotional code podcast10 to get a 10% discount. Thank you for listening.